Good. Uh, my name is Alan. Uh, once again, uh, glad that you're here. Glad you've chosen to worship with us today. We are in a series entitled The End. And we're looking at what God has told us through the book of Revelation in terms of what the end is all about and what are we supposed to take from this and draw from this. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first few chapters in the book of Revelation where Jesus specifically addresses seven different churches. And with each church, there's an affirmation, and then there's a challenge. And then what we pulled out of that is, in what way does God want to both affirm and challenge each one of us? And this group that gathers here on the corner of Pecos and 24th Street. And then last week, we looked at the question, why is there still hell happening here on earth? That if Jesus is victorious over death, then why do hellish things still happen? Why are we still dying? Next week, we are actually going to wrap up not only the end, but the entire whole shebang story. Next week, it will be week 36 and the final week of our entire whole shebang. For those of you who've been with us all of 2010, we've been looking at this overall epic story of God. And we're going to get this uh, wrapped up next week by looking at an amazing chapter. The very last chapter of the Bible offers this incredible promise, this incredible picture. We're going to take a look at that next week. But this week... Uh, we are going to take a look at something somewhat intriguing. If you look at the title for today, anyone see what the title is for today? Armageddon. How could you not want to go to church when the title of the message is Armageddon? I mean, what is this all about? What is the, the, uh, the what, what we're looking at this morning is a number of chapters kind of in the middle of Revelation to kind of zip through this and say, what is this thing supposed to look like? What hints has God given us in terms of what the end times, this Armageddon experience, what is it going to look like? I mean, is it really going to be uh, about a, a meteor that is coming towards the earth and then some courageous man is going to be flown to the meteor and then with precious seconds left, uh, before the meteor could be split and then, and then get away from the earth, he's going to have uh, numerous moments to have a conversation with his daughter uh, on the TV screens of NASA, uh, and, and it's going to be this incredibly moving experience. Is that really what's going to happen? What is the final battle between God and Satan going to look like? Pop culture is very fascinated by this. Numerous movies books, the Left Behind series that came out a little ways back. Uh, I remember delivering papers when I was a young lad and listening to uh, Iron Maiden, and uh, there was uh, the beginning of one of the songs there, Woe to you, O earth and sea. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beasts. None of you remember that because you weren't pagans like me, but how surprised was I when I became a believer and found out that this whole number of the beasts, 666, it's in the Bible. It's part of some of the pieces that God has given us. What is this going to look like? What is the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? Who is this woman who gives birth? What is the tribulation? Is it actually seven years? What is the millennium? Is it actually a thousand years? Over the next 20 minutes, we are going to answer every one of those questions <laughs> with absolute clarity. Okay, thanks for the laughter, because that's not going to happen. But we are going to take a look at it, and hopefully we're going to learn something. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for the gift of the book of Revelation. Some of us are afraid of it. We just stay away from it. But it is a gift from you. It is Scripture, and you have protected it and put it, put it there. And so, God, this morning we want to take a look at it humbly, 
yet boldly with your power and your presence, God, would you speak to us in terms of what you want us to pull out of this story? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dig in. We're going to begin with chapter 16. We're actually jumping to Revelation chapter 16. <coughs> I'm going to do a little bit more jumping around here today, but I, I will be staying in uh, the book of Revelation for the most part. Chapter 16, verse 13, John writes. Chapter 16, verse 13. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon. Okay, now I know we just jumped in right here. But this is one of those moments, one of those many verses in the book of Revelation where you wonder what kind of substance did John get a hold of on the island of Patmos? This is one of many that just kind of go, wow, this is different kind of writing. This is, this is, and then what's the fascination with frogs? I don't quite get this. We see frogs in the Old Testament. We see frogs here. I don't get kind of the fear factor connected with frogs. I've never seen a horror movie called The Frog Ribbit. There's nothing that has really kind of grabbed me with that. But uh, they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. There is some connection between frogs and deception. I don't quite get that, but there's some uh, kind of understanding that, that frogs represent deception, that there will be some deception where kings and, and persons of power from all over will gather for this great day of the Lord. And Jesus says, verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. These are the words of Jesus. This is why I don't sleep in the buff, uh, I think. Uh, I just don't want to be uh, overly exposed, I think. Uh, something here. Okay, so but continuing on. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. This is the one and only time in Scripture we find the word Armageddon. It's the one and only time. It is, it's just an amazing word. It's a word you don't find anywhere else. It is this unique, alluring, interesting concept. Armageddon. What is it? What is it all about? What is going to happen in this? Now, one of the big issues with the book of Revelation, for those of you who have spent some time studying it, is that if you decide to commit to having a, a to walking through the book of Revelation, to reading it from beginning to end, where we get tripped up is that there, it does not flow in chronological order. That what we find in the book of Revelation is that the end times, the Armageddon, the story of how the whole thing is going to wrap up, the story is told three or four times throughout the book of Revelation. That's why it gets confusing. So we read it and we think, well, I thought everything was already over, and now it's all begun again. That there are different pictures of it. It's a retelling, a revisioning of this Armageddon, of this end times. It's kind of like the four Gospels in the New Testament. 
Some who just jump into the Bible and start reading the New Testament assume that Jesus was born, and then he died, and then he rose again, and then he was born again, and then he died, and then he rose again, and then he was born as a baby again, and then he died, and then he rose again. You see where I'm going with this? That, that they are foretellings of the story, and the same thing we find in the book of Revelation. It's a little bit confusing because the story kind of jumps around a little bit. It's three or four different tellings of the end times of Armageddon. Something else that's important as we kind of look at, okay, how is this, what is this whole thing going to look like is to uh, look at two different concepts from the book of Revelation. Two concepts. One is the tribulation. Tribulation piece. If you have your Bibles, jump with me to chapter 7. I'm going to read real quick from verse 14. <clears throat> An elder said this to John, the writer of the book of Revelation, and halfway through verse 14 he says, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The tribulation is understood by many to be a period of seven years where a hellish experience would happen on earth like no other experience. And it is uh, understood as a seven-year period as an understanding of, of what Daniel talked about in the Old Testament. It's broken down to say it is a seven-year period. That's kind of, tribulation is a part of understanding the Revelation story. And I'll get back to that in just a moment. Another piece of understanding in the Revelation story is the concept of a millennium. Millennium, of course, means a thousand years. And this millennium shows up to be an important part of the Revelation story. Jump with me now, if you will, to Revelation chapter 20. That chapter begins, Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding it in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. The thousand-year period is clearly laid out uh, in Scripture that there is some kind of significance to this thousand-year period. And so what I want to do for the next six minutes is I want to walk through four historical understandings of how tribulation and millennium have, have blended together, how they become the story of the end times. There's four big understandings of this. Now, for those of you who are interested in this, who have studied this, or who have an opinion of, as to which of these four, or you're kind of leaning forward and interested, then I'm just thrilled to be able to kind of do this with you here this morning. Perhaps the majority of you who may not give a rip about it, okay, you may not care, I, uh, it's okay, but it's just six minutes, okay? I'm just going to walk through these four things, and it's only going to be six minutes. We can handle that, whatever our angle is, right? We can handle six minutes. Outstanding. Okay. And if it's more than that, don't throw anything at me here. But I want to kind of take a look at the four main understandings of how the tribulation and the millennium get all blended. And some of these phrases might be familiar or brand new to you. So let's go ahead and throw this up on the screen here. Little teaching moment here. We have four understandings. The first is post-tribulation premillennialism. 
say that ten times real fast. And the basic understanding there is that there will be a time of tribulation, a seven-year period after which Christ will return. That's that yellow number two. That's the second coming of Christ, that there is a, tri- there is a tribulation, then Christ will return, then there will be a millennium, a thousand-year period where Satan will reign here on earth. Okay, stay with me. Number two is pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. This means that there will be a tribulation time, a seven-year period, that starts with the second coming of Christ. It's referred to as the rapture. This is the day where people will get pulled out of their shoes, and those who are believers will get get zapped up, and you'll be halfway through conversation with somebody and go, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And then you'll know that you're in trouble. That's the kind of the rapture story. And then there will be a seven-year period of, of, of difficulty and darkness and hellish on earth, the tribulation, where those who, are, who are, are still here will have the opportunity, one final opportunity, in the midst of all this hellish stuff, to say yes to God. And then the fullness of the second coming will happen at the end of the seven years. There's kind of a part A and part B to the second coming here. Which will, be, which will start the beginning of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Satan. We're having fun now. This, this here, this second one, this is pretty popular among many evangelicals, this second understanding. If you read in the 70s, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, this is the perspective he came from. If you read the Left Behind series uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, this is the pre tribulation, premillennialism perspective. Uh, I, 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 read the, uh, I read the Left Behind series, and it drove me crazy. It drove me crazy because uh, it was like, whatever, 12 books or whatever it was, and the beginning of every book was really good, and the very ending of every book was really good, and the 97% in the middle of the book should have been left behind. It was really a waste of time, and they just hooked you right at the end, and so, anyway, that's just one person's opinion. Okay, now we have Number three is post-millennialism, that at some point there is some kind of uh, tribulation period, but at some point the millennium will start, and then the second coming of Christ will happen at the end of this thousand-year period. This thousand-year period is not a time of of darkness. This is referred to by post-millennialists as a golden age. This is great prosperity for Christians. This is just climbing and climbing and gaining more and more victory and more and more and more and more and more until the second coming of Christ and the whole thing is done. Post-millennialism. They uh, refer to themselves as optimillennialists, that it's kind of an optimistic view of the millennialism and that, that the other perspectives are, are pessimillennialists. It is kind of, there's lots of fun words. Okay, the last one is all millennialism. And this means that it is not uh, a specific thousand years. All means not. And so it's not a specific thousand years. We say, we say uh, when you put the, the, the letter on, uh, A in front of something, like atypical is not typical, or, or Amish is not mish. Uh, that all millennialism means it's not a thousand year period. It simply means... See, and this is a mark here of the, of the time, the pager number. That's a t- mark of the time. Okay. Uh, the amillennialism basically means that this thousand-year reign is not a literal thousand years. It is the time between the first coming of Christ. On the left there is, is 
is when Christ came on the cross. That the period, it's a symbolic millennium between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And it is a time that we are experiencing right now. There is, of course, the fifth understanding that I did not put up there called uh, panmillennialism, where everything will just pan out in the end. That's kind of another, uh, okay, <coughs> sorry. Uh, but the reason I'm, uh, there, six minutes, we're done. That's it, you can breathe again. The, the reason I'm kind of walking this through with you is just so that if you read something or hear something or watch a movie with some kind of perspective or whatever, just to keep in mind that there isn't one understanding of how the Revelation story gets walked out. That I personally am very suspect of anyone who says, who claims, this is it. And any other, st any other, other understanding is absolutely wrong. Because the reality is that all four of those views have been embraced over the last 2,000 years by very smart people. And each of those four views can be substantiated by Scripture. It's not just somebody's opinion somewhere along the line. Each of those four views, you can say, look at what it says here. Now, all that being said, let me just tell you where I stand, just for fun. Uh, okay, so can we put those back up again, please? Here we go. Number four is where, is where uh, I land, is in terms of the amillennial perspective. That, that it is not a literal thousand years. That there are other times in Scripture, and again, I'm not saying that's it, this is the answer. I'm just telling you where, where I stand. That there, there are other times in Scripture where a thousand years, is, where a thousand is simply referred to as a whole lot. That God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's another time in First Chronicles where it says that, that uh, something would be done for a thousand generations. In other words, for a whole lot. Kind of a, 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 a hard to determine uh, amount of time. Second reason I, I embrace amillennialism is that I believe what, what we find in the book of Revelation is relevant for us today. It's not just information that will be relevant for some generation somewhere in the future and that we can skip over the book because it, it's not our time of tribulation. It's not our time of the millennium. That it's relevant for somebody else. No, I believe that what we see in the book of Revelation is relevant now. That the, that the hellish things that we experience is happening now. That this, this time between Christ, uh, as we looked at last week, uh, declaring victory and the fullness of his victory, the first coming and the second coming, is happening now. That the four horsemen are riding now. That we have the opportunity to respond to God now. What we read in the book of Revelation is relevant now. Now, I have no issue whatsoever with the uncertainty or the ambiguity that we find in the book of Revelation. And the reason for that is that I don't think God needs to be figured out. You see, that's how complex relationships work, is that you don't figure the person out and then, boom, that's how you get to the, to the utopia of that relationship. I've been married to Tammy for 13 years. I do not have her figured out. And, and the reality of this that kind of blows my mind a little bit is my understanding of God is that He is even more complicated than women. Wait, just write that one down, seriously. 
So if I can't figure out my wife, how, how am I, who am I to suppose I've got to figure God out? See, I'm okay with the uncertainty here because I think mystery is beautiful. I want God to remain mysterious in some way. See, mystery is more powerful than information sometimes. You think about a magic trick, that if you don't know how a magic trick works, the awe is still there. You want to find out, how does that thing hover in midair like that? That is so cool. You want to find out, the mystery is there. As soon as you find out, oh, oh, okay, it's just a trick. And you're no, you're no longer interested, you know, you're kind of impressed with yourself, oh, I know how he does that, or whatever. But the, the mystery is where the awe is. The mystery is sometimes where the power is. J.J. Abrams is the creator of a uh, TV show my wife and I used to watch called Alias. We used to love Alias. He was the co-creator of Lost. And he's known for creating these mysteries in his, in his uh, shows, in his TV series that draw you in. What's happening here? What is the island? Who is the island? What's happening on the island? He tells a story of when he was 10 years old, his father gave him a mystery box. His father gave him a box from a magic store. I saw the box. It's about this big. It has a big question mark on it. And it is a mystery box from the magic store that costs $15, but it declares on the side it has $50 worth of magic tricks inside it. That's a good deal. $50 worth for $15 in this mystery box. You buy it, and you don't know what's in it. His father gave it to him when he was 10 years old. He has not opened it. It remains in his office, his mystery box. And you tell me whether the box has more value now with the mystery than if he had just opened it and found these little plastic things in there or a couple cards with a bent corner or whatever. The box has more power because of the mystery. Mystery is what draws us into story. It's what draws us into books. It's what draws us into movies. That any good movie is going to start off with some kind of mystery. Who is this? What's happening? Why did that go that way? What, what's so powerful about that little gold ring with the funny writing on it? And why did it make Bilbo Baggins disappear? What's happening? Who is Obi-Wan Kenobi? And why is that, that holographic woman seeking him out? What's happening here? It's the mystery that draws us in. You think about it. When you go to a movie theater, those of you who, pagans who do that, that, that the movie theater itself is a mystery box. If you haven't seen the movie yet, you go in and you sit down and you don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to start off with something thunderous? Is it going to be a soft entry? There's mystery right away. And sometimes the best part of a movie is when the lights go down. Unfortunately, there are many movies for which that's the best part. <laughs> when the lights dim down, it's about to happen. The mystery is about to be unfolded. Mystery is a beautiful thing. And our Father in Heaven has given us a mystery box that we won't open until the second coming. And then it's at that point that we'll go, oh, now I get it. The frog coming out of the mouth of the dragon? Perfect sense now. How could I not have seen that before? We're going we're gonna to get it. Mystery is a beautiful thing. Now, there's part of the Revelation story, the, the Armageddon, the end time story, 
That is a mystery for the details, the circumstances, exactly how this is all going to look, the timeline, etc. But it's mysterious. But there's also part of it that is very, very clear. If you look at each of these four historical views, understandings of the, of the end times, there's something very consistent about all four of these views. They all have the yellow circle. They all have the second coming of Christ. There is no debate. There's no ambiguity or mystery with regard to whether or not Christ is returning. And that day, that moment, that time is referred to as judgment day. Where there's no ambiguity is that there will be a judgment day. Now this is where some say, ah, that's what I have a hard time with. A God of judgment a God of wrath. And some will say, my God is a God of love. I get that. I, I hear that. I feel that. But I don't see it limited to that in Scripture. Whether we like it or not, there is clarity in Scripture that God will come in judgment. And judgment, justice is good. Really, our response to judgment or justice should make us kind of look into our hearts a little bit because it's those who are in trouble with judgment and justice who are going to be most troubled by the concept of judgment and justice. You think about the receivers of the book of Revelation that John wrote this to these seven churches who were under tremendous persecution by the Romans and suffering. They wanted just judgment. They wanted justice. They would not have read the concept of a judgment day as a heavy, whoa, how could a, a loving God do that? They read it and went, thank you, God. Bring your justice. Justice is a good thing. And so let's just take a look real, real briefly at, at what we can know about this judgment day, this second coming of Christ, wherever it's going to happen. That, first of all, uh, kind of imagine it being a courtroom, which is how we typically imagine judgment and justice. Imagine it being a courtroom, and the person behind the bench is God. The judge is God. And that's an important point because sometimes we put ourselves behind that bench. Sometimes we assume that role. If we've been wronged, if we've been hurt by someone else, we want to take on the role of judging that person, of trying to seek vengeance, trying to make sure that, we, that our uh, uh, troubles are taken care of by somebody else being judged, being um, uh, experiencing the consequences of what they have done to us. Sometimes we take on that role that is not the role for us to take. Now, I'm not talking about a judicial system, a, a national political system. I'm talking about your heart, your experience, your encounters with different people in your lives and your families. That that is not the role for us to take. God says, vengeance is mine. That is not the role for us to take. When we assume that role, that does incredible damage to our hearts. Because that's not the role we're supposed to take. That's the role God is supposed to take because he can do it fairly. And we can't. We can't. We can't separate ourselves from that. Justice is good because the one who sits behind the bench 
is fair and good and loving. Secondly, in this judgment courtroom, you can imagine that everything will be revealed. Everything. For some, that's a fearful concept. For others, that's, that's liberating. Because in our imperfect world, there's so much justice that doesn't happen. There are people who are oppressed. There are things that are happening. There are the powerful who, are, who get away with things over the less powerful in this world. And it seems like they got away with it. But in that courtroom, everything is revealed. Every injustice. Everything that happens in darkness, everything that persons got away with, every unsolved crime in every police station around the world for eternity is revealed in that place. All is revealed. And the other thing that we find about this judgment day, we find in the book of Revel- in, uh, Revelation chapter 20, we see that there are two books that are present in this room. One book is a list of everything that you have done. When it is your turn in that courtroom, there is a book with a list of every thought, every sin, every mistake, everything that you have done and already paid for, everything that you have done and no one has noticed, everything that is done in secret, everything is revealed in that place. Everything. Then there's a second book. And that's referred to in Revelation 20 as the book of life. And this is a very simple book. And it may have a subtitle as of by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the book where names are either in it or not in it. And after uh, uh, book one is a part of the courtroom scene, either Jesus will show up at that moment as a result of book number two, the book of life, and say, I know this one. I know this person. He or she is taken care of. His name is in the book of life. I got it. And then as a result, everything from book one gets thrown into the sea as far as the east is from the west. It, it, it does not exist. It is completely cleared out. Celebration time. Or Jesus in that moment says, unfortunately, I don't know this person. I don't have a relationship with this person. This person's name is not in the book of life. And then that person is on his or her own to deal with what was listed in book number one. The Bible is very clear that there will be a day for all living and dead. There will, each person will have his or her day in court. Now, so far, what I've talked about with regard to Armageddon in the last days is basically what will happen. But what I said last week that we were going to look at this morning is the when question. Well, when is this going to happen? That if, if we are in between Christ's first coming and second coming, if, if Jesus won the, 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 the war on, on Normandy, but the war is still happening, what is God waiting for? That we looked at Revelation chapter 7, and that there were 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes, and the number 12 represents completeness, that God is waiting for something to be completed before this is going to happen. What is he waiting for? 
When will this happen? In order to take a look at that, I want you to just listen here. Don't, don't turn with me, but I want you to listen to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to look at two verses. You can turn if you'd like, obviously, but they're listed in your, uh, in your notes there. You can take a look at them later. Just this incredible encounter that Jesus has with his disciples in chapter 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is the question. They asked the question for us. And beautifully and wonderfully, Jesus answers directly. He goes on over the next few verse, verses and he talks about how things will escalate. There will be wars and rumors of wars and things are going to get worse and worse. And some understand this to be the tribulation time and others understand this to be the millennium time. And there's different understandings that are part of the mystery. But then we go down to verse 14. And Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, in the whole world, as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When this gospel, this story, this whole shebang, the story of the, the existence of God and sending Christ, and when this whole story is preached, is sent, is told to all nations, then the second coming will happen. Then the end will happen. This is hinted at in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. We read this earlier, but chapter 5, verse 9 they sang, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Chapter 7, verse 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That every corner of the earth is to be reached according to God's plan before the second coming will happen. That that's our job. That's our mandate, our 2,000-year-old mandate. It's understood that right now, there are about 16,000 to 20,000, depending on how you break it down, different people groups, nations, languages, tribes, etc. I'm not talking about that many countries. We're not divided up simply by countries because there are multiple uh, breakdowns within, with divisions within countries of, of cultures and languages. In the United States, there's estimated that there's about 360 different people groups, different, different groups of people, some of whom have not yet been reached, a whole group of people that God is waiting for us to do something about. There are different people groups around the world, and God is waiting for them to be reached before he will return. So, how are we doing with this? Uh, as far as a 2,000-year story, history, what's the status of this? There's an organization called IMB, International Missions Board. They have a global database that they have been working on for a number of years. And here's some information from it. I want to put this up on the screen here. The left column is the year A.D. Middle column is one believer for every X number of non-believers, those who are not, would not call themselves Christian. And on the right is unreached people groups. These different people groups who have not been reached with the gospel of Jesus. 
in the year 100, there was one Christian for every 360 non-Christians. This is the first, this is the end of the first century. This is part of our whole shebang story where we saw this small group that were starting this revolution. And there were about 60, estimated 60,000 unreached people groups. There are only 16 to 20,000 total in the world right now, so we've clustered a lot since then. But there are over 60,000. In the year 1,000, it's estimated one Christian for every 220 non-Christians. 50,000 unreached people groups. 1,500, one for every 69. 44,000 unreached people groups. 1,900, one for every 27. 40,000. 1950, one for every 21, 24,000. 1980, one for every 11, 17,000. 1990, one for every seven non-Christians. 12,000 unreached people groups. In 2000, it was estimated that there's one in three person in the world, about 32%, uh, with 6,500 unreached people groups in the world. Do you see the trend here? For those of you who are math people, graph people, do you see the trend of what's happening? What's going on in our world? How close this is becoming? Now, the reality is that in 2010, I don't have the, the exact numbers, but they're pretty close to what we see in, 2000, in the year 2000. Still about one-third of the world is, uh, would call themselves Christian, and still about 6,500 unreached people groups. So much less has happened over the last 10 years. Why? Our world has changed in the last 10 years. 9-11 had a significant impact on our economy, on our thoughts about uh, taking care of ourselves, perhaps some fear factors, etc. But there's a graph that is still moving in this direction. Next week, we are going to hand out our annual Christmas missions uh, uh, outreach brochure. We're going to hand that out to you. And for those of you who have been with us for a while, uh, every year around Christmas, we take a special outreach offering and we're going to uh, give you that information to take a look at it next week and then so, uh, in mid-December we're going to take up that offering but you'll see that that brochure reflects a value for us in 2011 to embrace our responsibility with regard to unreached people groups around the world and we're pretty excited about this see this is a responsibility for us or optimistically this is an opportunity for us to be invited into what Christ clearly says in Matthew 24. This is what I'm calling you to do. Among the other ways that we show love, in what way are we going after people who have not yet been reached with the gospel? So the book of Revelation contains many mysteries. But it is relevant. The story is relevant. There are parts of this that God wants us to read. And my hope is that there would be a little less apprehension for us to go into the book of Revelation and say, God, I know this is the, one of the hardest books to read, but what do you want to say to me? I want to jump in. God, what do you want to say here to me in this book? Do you believe there will be a last judgment? A second coming? Do you believe that it will be happening soon? Do you believe that this group of people can make an impact on God's call for reaching the nations and the languages 
and the peoples of this world? I sure do. Will you pray with me? Once again, God, I thank you for these, God, pictures. God, I thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself through all of Scripture. And God, may we be unafraid to uh, jump into the book of Revelation. May we be unafraid to embrace the call that you have for us as a church to be a part of your global plan. It is an honor to be invited into that. And so, God, I pray that as we think about our responsibility as a church, that we can just think big. I mean, there's a part of this story that is, that is so beautifully personal that, it, that, 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 that the judgment and that the book of life and the, and the opportunity for us to have eternal freedom is, is a very personal experience. That regardless of the hell that we're experiencing here on this earth, that you have given us a promise that we will one day be free from that. But then also, God, there's a big picture on how you have a plan for us as a group. We reflect on you now as we sing this song.